Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us. My name is Michael Sony. I am the director of the Fairbanks Center for Chinese Studies. Uh, thank you all for joining us uh, at today's special discussion, China's Future Leadership, an instant analysis of China's 19th Party Congress, co-sponsored by the Fairbanks Center and the uh, Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation. We say instant analysis because, of course, the Congress is still ongoing, uh, and so we are still unclear exactly uh, uh, how uh, and who will be in, how, how China's leadership will be comprised and, and what they will do over the next few years. But we thought it would be an interesting exercise to assemble uh, really an A-team of experts to uh, try to tackle some of the leading uh, questions surrounding the Party Congress, even as it is going on. Um, evidently, some of you thought so too. So thank you for joining us. Uh, I will just very briefly introduce the panelists uh, and then hand things over to our moderator, um, uh, Mark Elliott. Um, the uh, panelists, as I said, are a true A-team of China experts uh, from Harvard and the Boston area. Joe Fusmith is Professor of International Relations and Political Science at Boston University's Pardee School and a center associate of the Fairbanks Center. Huang Yasheng is International Program Professor in Chinese Economy and Business and Professor of Global uh, Economics and Management at the Sloan School of Management at MIT. Tony Sage is Director of the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation at Harvard's Kennedy School. Uh, and also Daiwu Professor of International Affairs at Harvard. Uh, and we are very pleased to be cooperating, collaborating with the Ash Center in co-sponsoring today's event. Elizabeth Perry uh, is Henry Rosowski Professor of Government and Director of the Harvard Yanjing Institute. Edward Wong is a journalist and foreign correspondent for the New York Times. And we're very happy to have him this year uh, at Harvard uh, at the Neiman Foundation for Journalism. Finally, our moderator today is uh, my predecessor, former director of the Fairbanks Center for Chinese Studies and current vice provost for international affairs, Mark Elliott. Uh, today's event is one of several events that the Fairbanks Center is holding in conjunction with Harvard Worldwide Week, a new initiative spearheaded by Mark's office to celebrate and highlight Harvard's uh, global impact and global engagement. Uh, just a quick word uh, about uh, technical matters. Uh, we are taking questions, so the, each of the panelists will speak uh, briefly, uh, and then we will open things up for a discussion. We will take questions from the audience both here and elsewhere through a, a variety of channels. We'll take questions from you here physically in the room at the microphones in the back, um, so please wait for the microphone before asking your question. Um, those of us watching, you, well, actually, you have multiple options, as do those watching elsewhere. You can tweet us at Fairbanks Center or at Fairbanks Center or at Harvard Ash. Uh, you can uh, ask us questions on Facebook through uh, the comments section, uh, or you can also submit questions anonymously through the question portal, uh, the link and QR code for which will be on the screen momentarily behind me. <laughs> um, so 
there are there are multiple opportunities for for discussion, uh, and you have multiple channels to ask even questions that you uh, feel are are uh, more sensitive than you'd like to to than than you would would, would allow you to uh, speak directly at the microphone. Uh, with those technical matters out of the way, please join me in welcoming our panelists, and I will now hand things over to our moderator, Mark Elliott. Thanks very much, Michael, and uh, welcome to all of you here. It's just fantastic to see such a great, uh, a, a, a great turnout for this important event. Um, I will uh, uh, be looking forward to uh, the, the remarks that we'll be hearing in a, in a second, and then to your, to your questions. Um, I will be looking at my phone regularly during uh, the presentations. It's, it's not because I'm uh, scrolling through to find my new favorite cat video. Uh, <laughs> but uh, because I will be uh, fed questions through the uh, wonders of modern technology uh, on WeChat, which means, of course, that the Chinese government will probably also be able to see all of the questions <laughs> that are coming through here. But that's fine. We're live streaming. We're open to the world. I would ask, however, that um, uh, respectfully that you refrain from recording uh, yourself. Uh, this will be live streamed. It will be made available later, I presume, on the, on the Fairbank uh, webs, uh, website. So um, no uh, private recording, please. And we haven't agreed uh, previously on, on uh, what the uh, order ought to be. But I'm going to start from the far right, and I'm going to ask our distinguished um, guest uh, from uh, the Neiman uh, uh, Foundation, uh, Neiman Fellow this year, Ed Wong, if he would get us going, and then uh, we'll just move uh, uh, through the panel uh, from uh, r my right to, uh, uh, to, to my left, uh, and then at that point uh, uh, we'll uh, do, uh, move to the, to the Q&A. Uh, I think um, each of you was asked to speak for between five to seven minutes, so uh, something, uh, something of that sort. You're, your thoughts on what is exactly uh, going on uh, in Beijing these days? Ed. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Mark. Um, I know some people here probably want to hear a list of names for the anywhere from five to nine seats that might end up on the standing committee, but I'm not going to give out my list right now. We'll see if the other panelists decide to do that. Um, but uh, I, I'll hazard guess that Li Yuan Chao won't end up on it, but some people are uh, arguing otherwise. Um, so I'm going to start off with a bit of a retrospective and then move onward to some questions that I think are relevant. Um, so being the journalist in the room and having departed China recently after working there for nine years, I want to open with an assessment of our attempts, the attempts of journalists, at a first draft of history, and specifically of our, of our attempts to get insider information on these arcane party congresses and to analyze their outcomes. And there might be a bit of self-flagellation in my remarks, which will no doubt please the many critics of the New York Times in this room. So five years ago in Beijing, the Communist Party was entering what was arguably its most fraught party congress, coming as it did near the end of a turbulent year for party leaders. This is the year, of course, of the Bo Xilai and Ling Jihua scandals. And it was the same year that Bloomberg News and The Times published stories on the family wealth of President-in-waiting Xi Jinping and Prime Minister Wen Jiabao, respectively. Rumors swirled around everything so, to a much greater degree than they do currently around the 19th Party Congress. It was difficult to separate truth from fiction and to cut through the noise. Looking back on our stories, I saw we somehow managed to get a few things right. We reported that Hu Jintao would not try to hold on to his position as chair of the Central Military Commission. 
We reported that the number of standing committee seats would shrink to seven, and we listed the names of the seven men likely to fill those. On those questions, we turned out to be right. But we missed the biggest story, the story that is now shaping China and the world, and that is one of Xi Jinping moving quickly to consolidate power, to embrace the spotlight, and to adopt a decisive personality-driven mode of leadership. And this had been his plan in the run-up to his taking the reins of formal power. How else can you explain that the first attention of a senior party official came as early as December, just one month after the 18th Party Congress? Xi's early moves set the pattern for the next five years. I don't think the Times and other journalists in Beijing were alone in being blindsided by Xi. For the most part, diplomats, government analysts, and scholars in the academy were also caught by surprise. As far as I can tell, everyone believed Xi had risen through the ranks of the party by being a background player who shunned the spotlight, and, this, and that this was the type of party, of party secretary and president of state that he would be uh, basically a taller version of Hu Jintao. We all know now that the dominant narrative is entirely different. I've read articles and essays in the last week asserting that Xi has near total control of the party, that his power within the system is equal to that of Deng or even approaches that of Mao, that he is steadily shredding long-standing party norms. The detention of Sun Zhengtai, the Chongqing party secretary who had been groomed to, by the party to be one of two potential successors to Xi is the latest data point reinforcing the narrative of Xi as a supreme leader. But I want to raise a question. Given the limits of what we know about the internal workings of the party, especially at the elite levels, I wonder whether we journalists, scholars, and analysts are overcompensating for our misreading of Xi five years ago. Are we now attributing to him an almost superhuman level of authority without the proper granular studies or reporting of what is actually happening within the party, whether at the standing committee level or at the level of city, county, and prefecture committees? In the post-Dung era, two of the major assumptions of party power have been these. One, that, deci that decisions at the top level are made by consensus, and two, that it is a challenge or a struggle for the central level of the party to impose policies or discipline across local levels. I don't have much to say about the consensus decision-making at the top levels. I don't have special insight into the internal workings at that level of the party. But on the second issue, I think there's plenty of evidence to suggest that the party center led by Xi still has a very hard time imposing its will in a deeply effective and uniform way on local officials. The signs can be mani manifest in small ways. When I was traveling a year ago in the provinces, I would hear of restaurants suffering because officials were holding less baijiu banquets due to the anti-corruption campaign. But then I would hear stories of officials hosting parties in their homes or even putting baijiu in plastic water bottles, sort of what high school students would do in the US. On more substantial issues, such as the environmental cleanup industrial transformation, the weaknesses of the party center are even starker. If we take the statements of party leaders at face value, we assume they are sincere about bringing down coal use and air pollution levels. And this makes sense since corruption and environmental degradation appear to be the two issues that currently pose the greatest risk to the le legitimacy of the party. Yet anyone spending any substantial amount of time in northern China and breathing its air knows that local officials and the heads of state-owned enterprises and other companies have not moved in the same direction substantially as the party center. In June, environmental inspectors sent from Beijing found that nearly 14,000 businesses, or 70% of companies they inspected, failed to meet environmental standards for controlling air pollution. Away from Beijing, I visited massive coal power plants under construction, a common phenomenon across China, even though there is a glut of coal power plants, and even though party leaders insist they want to promote non-fossil fuel energy sources at the expense of coal. 
These new coal burning plants, often promoted by local interests, amount to billions of dollars worth of wasted investment. To sum up, I'm not ready yet to say that she has near complete control of the party, especially if we look at the dynamics of the center and the localities. Like any journalist, all I have are collections of anecdotes, and these stories give a glimpse of countervailing current undercurrents and raise some doubts about the common wisdom. So I want to end by posing this question. Have we subjected this question of C and the extent of his power to rigorous empirical study? Wonderful. Thank you very much, Ed. Uh, Liz, the pedon passes to you. Thank you. Uh, I'm not a peakinologist, so I also will not hazard predictions about the likely lineup of the new standing committee. I also won't even predict whether or not Xi Jinping's name will actually be attached to the thought on socialism with Chinese characteristics for a new era that may be written into the Constitution. Instead, I'd like to focus my remarks on the meaning of that term, new era, xin shidai, that forms a main motif for the 19th Party Congress. I think there is some justification for the claim that China is entering a new era on a par with 1949, when Mao declared a political victory that restored China's national sovereignty, or 1978, when Deng Xiaoping championed economic policies that brought uh, stunning growth and poverty alleviation. Xi's new era is marked by many different things, but among them is impressive technological change with profound implications for the future of China and the world. Xi proclaimed in his work report, quote, our economy has moved from a stage of high growth to a stage of high quality growth. We will strengthen basic research in applied sciences, launch major national science and technology projects, and prioritize innovation in key technologies." Unquote. The past five years under Xi Jinping have indeed witnessed a kind of technological revolution, especially an IT revolution, that has brought amazing changes to China. In a country with a population of about 1.4 billion people, we find something on the order of 1.3 billion registered cell phones. Ordinary people click an app on their phone to hail a cab, to reserve a train or airplane ticket, to order takeout, even to pay for their daily vegetables in the early morning farmers' markets. Even small children are affected by this IT revolution. Earlier this month, I was uh, celebrating Mid-Autumn Festival, Zhongqiujie, with some friends in Shanghai. And I was surprised, a little dismayed, actually, to see the young children around the table um, clicking on their smartphones all through dinner. I turned to the young six-year-old sitting next to me to ask him whether he was playing electronic games. And he replied very seriously that he certainly was not gaming he was doing his daily homework. He showed me his telephone, and indeed he was completing what struck me as very complicated arithmetic assignments. Toward the end of the dinner, around 9.30 or so at night, the cell phones of all the children's parents started vibrating with text messages from their teachers reporting the grades and the rankings of the homework assignments that the children had just submitted online. The little six-year-old uh, that I had been conversing with was crestfallen to discover that he had come in only third in his class of 30-some students, 
It turned out he had indeed, according to his teachers, answered every question correctly, but he had submitted his answers a few minutes after two of his classmates. And I, of course, felt very guilty for having slowed him down with my questioning. <laughs> China's technological revolution extends to realms beyond cell phones. Innovations in renewable energy, solar, wind power, despite the coal plants that Ed just referred to, vehicles fueled by electricity instead of gasoline, and so on. The new era of technological change is very apparent at Chinese universities. We see expansive, expensive new campuses, boasting state-of-the-art laboratories, computer facilities, and much more. The rapid rise of China's leading universities in the world rankings, uh, even though I don't think highly of them, reflects the central government's substantial investment in R&D infrastructure. Two years ago, Tsinghua University beat out MIT in the US News and World Report rankings of the world's top engineering schools. These are just a few examples of a new era that seems to be dawning in China. And China is enthusiastically exporting its engineering to the rest of the world. Here in Cambridge and Boston, the red line and the orange line are about to introduce modern subway cars from Changchun. Across Asia and the Middle East, China has promised to invest over a trillion dollars in modern infrastructure as part of Xi's ambitious Belt Road initiative. For the most part, this seems like a very positive development for China and for the world. But there are some worrisome aspects to the dawning of a new era of Chinese technological prowess. Those gleaming new university campuses have recently installed video cameras in their classrooms and their lecture halls to ensure that course content conforms to ideological guidelines. Some universities have issued apps for their students' smartphones to facilitate the lodging of denunciations, jubao, against professors who may have crossed the ideological red line. Technology is not just a powerful tool for making information more publicly accessible, it's also a powerful tool of censorship. Digital keyword searches identify supposedly subversive material that is then targeted for electronic erasure from public circulation, whether that material appeared originally in Chinese social media posts or in the pages of Cambridge University Press journals. Digitization also provides new means of grassroots governance. The PRC has developed a remarkable system of grid management, Wanggehua Guanli, that divides neighborhoods into grids that are crisscrossed by comprehensive CCTV coverage. The grid managers work with police, local party committees, and social agencies to maintain 24-hour surveillance of those who live in or move through the area. The state is experimenting with a system of social credit codes, which draw on big data stored in the cloud to compile digital records on citizens, calculating their individual credit ratings to determine access to state entitlements and also various other privileges and penalties. Grid management can perhaps be seen as a modernized version of the Maoist system of household registration, or hukou. Social credit codes are somewhat reminiscent of Mao's class labels, or jieji chengfen, 
But these new modes of governance are conducted with a technological sophistication that Mao could only have dreamed of. Like their Maoist predecessors, the new modes of governance have many uses and many implications. When I visited neighborhoods in Shanghai's Pudong district this past summer, I was told that residents themselves make use of the grid to lodge complaints against local officials who are then required to answer citizens' complaints within three days or else suffer a black mark on their own digitized dossiers. And this, my Shanghai interlocutors explained, was an innovative upgrade of Mao's mass line. It's not surprising then that the 19th Party Congress opened with a moment of silence in honor of Mao Zedong and the other early party leaders, or that a banner festooned across the meeting hall declared Bu Wang Chu Xin, don't forget our original purpose. This new era is to be understood not as a rejection, but rather as a modernized refinement of earlier stages in party history. Whether the new era being celebrated at the 19th Party Congress should be seen more as a glass half empty or a glass half full is not yet entirely clear to me. But I think there is little doubt that Xi Jinping's era of technological progress and prowess is indeed a historic turning point for China, of major consequence not only for China, but also for the rest of the world. Thank you. Great, thank you, Liz. Um, I'd like to, uh, uh, on, on the theme of uh, Jubal, uh, remind everybody that uh, you are welcome to use the QR code here uh, to uh, Jubal your own questions. <laughs> maybe not quite Jubal, so maybe not quite the right word. But uh, one reason we have employed this technology is to enable anybody who would like to ask any question of any sort to be able to do so anonymously. Uh, so if, uh, I mean, we'll be calling on people here in the room uh, to raise your hand and speak, that's fine. Um, if there's a question that you'd rather not, um, uh, raise uh, so that everybody else around you can see who is raising the question, though. Feel free to please use our technology, which is not quite advanced as uh, uh, the grid uh, that Liz has uh, just uh, described for us, uh, but uh, we're taking maybe baby steps in, in that direction. Uh, Yasheng, please. Sure. Uh, maybe I can use the QR code to make my uh, comments. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to make five uh, points, and, and only the first one has something to do with the uh, 19th Party Congress. Uh, unlike my two previous panelists, I'm willing to say who the names are, uh, who, who are the standing committee uh, members, but only on Wednesday. So, uh, <laughs> 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 um, well, the thing is, I have no idea, uh, and, um, and I spent the, the weekend in Boston, so I didn't attend the meeting in Beijing. So, so that's as much as I can say about the 19th Party Congress. The second thing I want to say is um, it is important to, uh, whatever the results that are announced on, on Wednesday or, or Tuesday, we need to keep in mind that there has been a broad trend toward political centralization in China. So this is not something that has happened uh, suddenly and, um, and maybe unexpectedly. Um, my only conjecture is that the 19th Party Congress is going to uh, accentuate the centralization 
rather than uh, reducing it. So if you look at the Chinese political system in the last 40 years, uh, since the, the, the Mao period, I think prior to uh, 2013, there was a de facto uh, intra-party, um, a, a version of intra-party uh, democracy system. It's not uh, by design, it's not uh, formalized in the form of uh, institutions and, and constitutional uh, provisions, but it is uh, operating as a de facto um, uh, intra-party democratic system. In the sense that in the 1980s, you had uh, Deng Xiaoping, you had Chen Yun, who disagreed with each other on some broad policy issues. And I think the, the fact that you have that rivalry and disagreements served the, uh, the system well because you have the access to two different ideas, and, and neither of these two factions were trying, was trying to eliminate the other faction. In the 1990s, uh, at least for the first period of the 1990s, uh, you still had uh, Deng Xiaoping and, and then uh, Jiang Zemin. So there was that de facto uh, 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 check and balance system. And then the, during the Hu Jintao era, uh, you had Jiang Zemin and uh, and Hu Jintao as effectively uh, um, not checking and balancing, but at least uh, um, uh, providing some room for uh, disagreements and, and competition. I, my own view is that uh, that political um, faction, factionalism, um, unless it goes too far, has served China well um, and has moderated the politics. I think that system broke down uh, since uh, 2013. You know, we can debate. We can debate whether or not the uh, system is the right word to use to describe the previous uh, practices. It's probably not a system because it's not formalized. But as we know from studying other countries and societies, a system basically is a, cum uh, uh, a cumulative a result of uh, practices that were implemented over a long period of time. So that stopped, uh, I believe, in 2013. And it stopped for a, good, for, for a legitimate, maybe for a legitimate, partially for a legitimate reason. What stopped the, 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 the practice was corruption. Um, and I think corruption uh, went on for too long, uh, unchecked. Uh, and this is not just true in China, it's actually true many, many, in many, many other countries. Corruption is one thing that is the easiest political tactic to use to get rid of your opponents. And because nobody would disagree with you if you say your objective is to uh, fight against corruption. Right? If I advocate central planning, you know, probably half of the, this room will say you're wrong if I advocate uh, 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 market uh, uh, economics, the other half would probably disagree with me. If I advocate democracy, probably you know many of you would uh, uh, say that that's not right. If I advocate authoritarianism, there will be people who disagree and there will be people who agree. But on corruption, there's universal agreement that corruption is bad. Right. So I think 
the cleverness of the political technique was to use a, a, a issue uh, about which there's a universal agreement. Right? So, so here, uh, it is a, uh, about a, how to explain why corruption got as bad as it was in, uh, as of 2013. And I do believe that the leadership before uh, Xi Jinping uh, bore uh, quite a bit of a responsibility. So I, I'm not going to assign this political centralization responsibility totally to one person, because he came forth at a time when there was a, there was a, a lot of uh, uh, fertile ground for the idea that really the country needed a dramatic and drastic uh, action to deal with corruption. And you know, we can, again, have a debate whether the anti-corruption campaign has been uh, an effective one or not an effective one. Um, in my own opinion, uh, uh, the, the best you can hope for is the second best. Uh, so uh, having some sort of anti-corruption uh, campaign is better than not having it. But the side effect of that, maybe even direct effect of that, is uh, the collapse of some informal uh, moderation of, uh, of Chinese politics. Uh, the third thing I want to say is that I believe that the West also uh, bears a responsibility for the rise of uh, strongman politics. Uh, in fact, the West itself is now making a, a claim to having uh, strong uh, leaders. Uh, one of them uh, is uh, in the United States. And I, I think in the last 10 years, there have been two shocks that essentially uh, have gone a very long way to dismantle the legitimacy of uh, economic capitalism and uh, political capitalism. The recklessness is of the Wall Street in 2008 essentially destroyed the legitimacy of uh, uh, laissez-faire, uh, free market uh, economics uh, in China and in many other parts of the world. And then in 2016, uh, about the 100,000 voters in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, uh, Michigan, um, and uh, one other state uh, that I, um, I forget, uh, forget uh, put uh, Trump over the uh, electoral college uh, threshold. So, and that basically destroyed the legitimacy of, um, uh, of uh, political uh, capitalism. So essentially, if you think about, um, about this from a Chinese perspective, right, what is it that they have to learn from the West in terms of economics, in terms of politics? Um, I, I'm not saying that they don't actually, I believe that, uh, that they, they have a lot to learn, but from their perception, uh, there's very little to learn. And therefore, there's little uh, rational reason to restrain the uh, political centralization uh, within China. The, the fourth comment, I'll make it quick. Uh, the fourth comment has to do with the policy reforms and economic uh, reforms. My own view is that Chinese economy requires substantial <coughs> policy reforms toward market economy toward uh, liberalization. Um, 
if you look at uh, data, uh, not just GDP data, actually to me GDP data are not terribly uh, important. Uh, it is the productivity data that we're looking at. Um, China, uh, as many of you know, is growing at a lower rate as before in terms of the GDP growth. But what's absolutely more concerning is the productivity performance. The productivity performance has been very bad. And this is a very, um, should be a concerning issue. Uh, but, the, but the problem is that all the attention now is focusing on politics. And not much attention is focused on uh, economics. So, so essentially you have a demand. <laughs> on the demand side, you have a demand for policy reforms. I don't really see a realistic scenario on the supply side that the policy reforms will be supplied. Lastly, let me end with, uh, it's related to what I just said, uh, related to uh, uh, prospects of uh, economic reforms. It is very interesting in the last five years, if you look at how the Chinese leadership announces policy reforms and reform uh, goals, they're actually a very impressive set of goals and in, uh, instruments and, and steps, and very detailed, right? So if you look at the third plenum in 2013, the reform uh, document, it's extremely detailed. I forgot how many uh, uh, items on the list. I, I thought they were either 22 or 23 items on the list. But the problem is that uh, if you study the history of Chinese reforms, typically the reforms happen in China when the central leadership does not announce detailed blueprint of reforms. What the central leadership does typically is to announce some broad principles and then let the entrepreneurs and local officials experiment with new measures and new initiatives. So this is a, what, what I call the story of the two third plenums. In 1978, that third plenum produced a document that unquestionably moved China on the reform path. If you look at that document, that document was very broad. General principles, general goals, without specifying the mechanisms and the instruments and policy tools. It is that kind of documents that actually move reforms rather than a detailed blueprint. The reason why the detailed blueprint doesn't work is because if you were a local official in China, if the central government has specified everything in great detail, your natural incentive is to wait for the action to, to happen rather than taking on the action by yourself. And also the other thing is that if you specify so many uh, things, it's really difficult to start with one or two important things and then starting with those things will move the rest of the agenda. The success of the Chinese reforms in the past has been general principles, long-term goals, leaving a lot of room for maneuvering, experimentation with local officials, and then you focus on a few key things. By doing those few key things, you move the rest, right? So in the 1980s, it was the rural reforms and then the WTO and things like that. I believe that's the right way to move Chinese reforms rather than spelling out so many things which actually has exactly the opposite effect. Thank you very much. Thank you, Yashan. <coughs> Joe? 
next five, seven minutes belong to you. Okay, thank you. Um, <coughs> pleasure to be here. I think um, I should start by saying that I think one of the great misperceptions of China is that somehow succession politics had been solved. Uh, we've been told repeatedly over the last decade that China had developed institutions, institutions would constrain power, and power could be passed from one generation to another without any particular problem. Um, I haven't heard Bo Xilai's testimony on this case, but I think that he would probably suggest there's a problem with this theory. Um, he, you know, obviously he, um, well, we haven't heard his testimony, but uh, the testimony of Xi Jinping is that he and some of his colleagues, uh, Zhou Yongkang, Ling Jihua, Xu Caiho, uh, engaged in political conspiracy, that's really harsh language. Uh, I think in American discourse, we call that treason. Uh, that is going outside party channels, doing things, we don't know exactly what things, crossing from civilian to military power. Uh, that is an enormous crisis in governance. Uh, so I think one of the problems that we're going to have to look at is what happened to this vaunted institutionalization. It did not seem to take place, take over. And I think we're seeing a lot of the same thing today. Um, let me go back and pick up some of the comments that uh, Yasheng just said. Uh, I think it's fairly clear that Jiang Zemin wanted to pass power to Zheng Qinghong. But Deng Xiaoping, in his wisdom, had said, no, you do it for 10 years and then give it to this other guy, Hu Jintao. And what that did was uh, give power to different wings of the party. I don't want to say factions, but different centers of power in the party, different interests and so forth. And in that sense, I think Deng Xiaoping really was aiming at trying to develop some institutionalization and maybe some collective decision making. Similarly, I think Hu Jintao wanted to pass power on to Li Keqiang. And the 18th Party Congress was a very complicated affair, but it seems that Jiang Zemin and other people decided, no, we'd rather get it, give it to Xi Jinping and put it more back in our side of things. Uh, and I think that Xi Jinping, one of the things that seems to be coming out of this Congress and out of the last five years, is that Xi Jinping is quite determined to pass on power to his chosen successor rather than to allow um, it to go to, if you will, a different wing of the party or, um, or have a bottom up some sort of collective decision making, which speaks to the centralization of power that uh, Yasheng was just talking about, that we've uh, disabled that informal balancing mechanism in favor of a concentration of power. And I think one of the really startling pieces of news that has come out of this Congress is that apparently Sun Zhengcai, the uh, former party secretary of Chongqing and one of the at least candidates for uh, successor position, uh, has been accused of trying to seize party and state power. Uh, you know, we're not sure whether this is related to the Bo Xilai case or whether this is something new, but it again suggests, uh, first of all, that mechanisms of succession 
have hardly been resolved. And second, that there are an awful lot of powerful people in China that don't like Xi Jinping or feel threatened by him, uh, if that's not the same thing. Um, I think this goes at least a little bit to what uh, Ed Wong was just saying. And five years ago, we thought that Xi Jinping was going to be a, a fairly complacent, uh, middle-of-the-road, fairly conservative guy. Um, I haven't talked to Jiang Zemin lately, or ever. <laughs> but, uh, but I'm guessing that that's what he thought. <laughs> and you're met with this wonderful Chinese political talent of not revealing what you've been thinking for the last 65 years <laughs> until you get into power. Uh, and, and so one of the questions that I think we all have to think about is, so how did he go from this apparently uh, weak political figure without a visible political base into a very formidable um, political force who uh, seems to be dominating the political system? And of course, there's nothing like political crisis to do that. Uh, and the uh, opposition, apparent opposition from Bo Xilai and others seems to have been the, what he needed to go to the party. And I think he probably did go to the party, meaning primarily the elders and probably the standing committee, and say, if we are going to solve these problems of corruption, of um, going outside party lines, I need to have sufficient authority to do that. Do you want to solve these problems, or do you want the party to fall apart? OK. Um, I'm imagining that scenario, but I, th I think something like that must have happened because it's right after the 18th Party Congress that the bodies start falling. Li Chun-Chung being the first one, uh, a Deputy Party Secretary of Sichuan, who was related politically to Zhou Yongkang, and then you follow the line up. So crisis, in other words, the party faces an enormous crisis. These people have engaged in a political conspiracy to, to disrupt the party. We need to do something. And that brought into the role, the, 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 into play the role of the CDIC. I have no idea what the others who granted him this uh, authority thought he would do with it, but what uh, he did, uh, obviously, is go after not only these people, but at least 150 other so-called tigers and 1.14 million flies. There are an awful lot of flies <laughs> in China. Uh, <laughs> at any case, um, so you know, we've, we've seen him do those sorts of things. We've seen him now go after critical positions. And I think one of the interesting things of watching the Xi Jinping, this power transition, and others, is that you can really watch power flow. So, you know, uh, Xi Jinping has now taken over the Ministry of State Security, which was obviously close to Zhou Yongkang. You see him move those people out, his own people in. Um, you know, the, obviously, the general office, which is sort of the uh, heartbeat of the whole system, it's where all the signals come from and all that sort of thing, uh, the CDIC. And of course, over the last couple of years, we've seen an absolutely remarkable attempt to uh, um, carry out military reform. Uh, you know, uh, it's not that she was the first person to think of this, but he has uh, removed, uh, I think it's about 62 or three senior military uh, people 
over the last couple of years. This, you know, I don't, I can't imagine Jiang Zemin or Hu Jintao doing this. Uh, and that, that tells you where power is and how it is exerted. Uh, so we've had that. And then, of course, he's managed to promote a lot of his followers. Uh, see, you know, this is going to reshape our thinking about how do you think about political networks or factions or whatever you want to, to call them, because he had, as Ed said, he had no visible um, political base when he was made uh, general secretary, but he is certainly cultivating that, uh, that base. Uh, tsai Chi now is party secretary of Beijing, Chai Ming-er uh, over in Chongqing. Um, you know, Li Jianshu is head of the general office. Ying Yong will be, I assume, party secretary of Shanghai. You know, he's just been building this political base very, very rapidly. Um, and I think that that's likely to continue when the official announcement is made in two days. Uh, I'm assuming that it will say what the South China Morning Post said yesterday, um, because this seems to be carried by a a lot of people. I'll, I'll, I'll go out on a limb and name what the, uh, well, I'll, I'll quote the South China Morning Post. <laughs> That's, a, uh, That's a good way to end. Zhao Luji, Wang Huning, Wang Yang, Han Zheng, and Li Jiangshu to move up. Uh, that leaves, <laughs> that leaves uh, Hu Chunhua on the sidelines for another five-year term as a member of the Politburo. Um, it also, for some reason, skips over Li Yuanchao. I can't figure that one out. Um, you know, so, and, and Zhang Chunxian gets skipped over as well. Uh, what's remarkable about this is that she is following the rules, or most of them. If the rules are that you retire at 68, Wang Qishan is out. Uh, if the rules are that you promote from the Politburo to the Standing Committee, he has appointed from the Politburo to the Standing Committee. Uh, he has violated what seemed to be the practice, if not the rule, of going according to age. Uh, but he has picked out, if this list is correct, five people from the Politburo. And if this list turns out to be right, he will dominate the Politburo Standing Committee in a way that Jiang Zemin did not do in his 10 years or that Hu Jintao did not do in his 10 years. I will just say that the only time Jiang Zemin dominated the Politburo Standing Committee was when he stepped down. Uh, <laughs> and then he packed the uh, Standing Committee. And on that note, I will pass the baton. Thank you, Joe. I think we may, uh, uh, or so one or two questions about rule following, and, and we may get a question or two about is Xi Jinping following the rules, which rules, he, I think he gets to pick which rules he wants to follow and other rules maybe he doesn't want to follow. Tony, uh, it's always tough being the last in such a stellar panel like this, it's even harder for challenge. Has, have all the good things been said? Yes, so I'll just say a few crappy things. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, Joe is right, starting last week, uh, the new standing committee was being leaked out and it's pretty much uh, everybody's pretty much now pumping out the same thing. I want to start with some quotes from a report to the party congress and Joe you're not allowed to answer this. Since 1921 the CCP has dedicated itself to the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. 
It's important that the study of Marxism, the development of theory to establish a system of core socialist values. Party exercises absolute leadership over the armed forces. We need to make China an innovative country. We will build a community of common destiny and the state-owned sector is the important part of the economy. Who said it? Do you think Xi Jinping? Hu Jintao in 2007. If I put up on the board uh, the seven key priorities that Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao put forward in 2002-2003, they'll be exactly the same as what the Xi Jinping Li Keqiang leadership has been promoting for the last five years. So what do those two things tell us? I think they tell us two things. First, that Xi Jinping's thought on socialism with Chinese characteristics for a new era, apart from being cumbersome, has actually been developing for some time. These are not actually his ideas. Many of these have originated uh, over the years of the 2000s. They've also been uh, pushed somewhat harder uh, with China's response to the global crisis of 2008-2009, which has clearly boosted its uh, confidence. So those have been developing for some time in the party. And therefore, I think they probably enjoy strong support within the Chinese Communist Party. This is not something plucked out of the air or developed by Xi by himself alone. The second though, the fact that the policy priorities are still the same as now 15 years ago, shows how difficult it is to actually get significant forward momentum uh, in the system. And I think that indicates why Xi Jinping feels that his first priority was to create a unified, strong party that had uh, as a core component, as Yashan said, reduced levels of corruption and people using a public position for private gain as a way to kind of try and rally support and build credibility again for the Communist Party. You know, the, the Chinese Communist Party I study is full of people being dismissed for left adventurism, right opportunism, so on and so forth. Trump being Trotskyites at the same time as they're being Stalinists as being probably Enver Hodgeites. I don't suppose as many people remember dear old Enver Hodge in this audience. But that is clearly ridiculous in the current day and age. And so corruption, as Yashan correctly said, becomes the tool uh, for removing people. So the report itself, of course, is useful because it draws together strands that I think have developed over the last 15 years uh, of thinking for the Chinese Communist Party. The dream is pretty clear, and I don't think there's actually going to be really any departure over the next five years. Politically, as I said, it's the clampdown on corruption, it's the primacy of the party, it's tighter control over society and information flows, and of course the pursuit of nationalism to underpin legitimacy. I think there one of the most important things is that there's now really an even stronger identification than before of the nation with the party. And this is important because it really makes criticism of party policy less legitimate and actually becomes unpatriotic. And that, I think, is a very dangerous uh, way uh, to go. Uh, and of course, the last point is uh, China playing a greater role globally to assert its national pride. On the economy, uh, also, the objectives are clear. And as Yasheng said, uh, these were laid out at the third plenum. There were 60 priorities that were going to be uh, carried out, not just on the economy, but across a whole range of things. And as we like to teach at the Kennedy School, you never set 60 priorities, just concentrate on one or two 
Otherwise, things will get diluted for the reasons that other panelists have said because of local uh, deviation. But I think for me, the most important thing that's come out of the report is the, re the clear reassertion of the important role of the state-owned sector. And I think what we've seen progressively over the last year is enhanced party control uh, of the domestic economy and externally also through One Belt, One Road. So we've seen reassertion of party control over the private sector, also about how private wealth is used. If you look at the new charity law, it's clear that Chinese leadership has now accepted private wealth exists in China, but the charity law is going to define how that wealth will be distributed to meet priorities set by the Chinese Communist Party. In the private sector, I think it's also really interesting that essentially what the party did was that they outsourced IT development. The party didn't have the capabilities in-house to run a modern IT system, so they outsourced it to people who made clones and then improved on things that are being developed in Silicon Valley. And now, of course, what the state is doing, as it's done in other sectors, is reasserting itself back into that sector uh, by taking a stake in the IT companies and also demanding a chair uh, on the board. And then I think we see the simile uh, with One Belt, One Road. It seems to be One Belt, One Road is also a clear indication that the party wants to control uh, China's process for uh, outbound investment. So I think who the new leadership is going to be clear. I think the fact that they've been pushing this for 15 years shows how difficult it has been to maintain forward momentum. But I think certainly in the next five years, we're not going to see much change from what Xi Jinping uh, had put together before the Congress and outlined very clearly uh, in his report uh, to the Congress. Thank you. Thank you, Tony. I was wondering when One Belt, One Road was going to come up, and so thank you for, for bringing, well, indeed. Uh, we have some questions that have come up in here. One of them actually has to do with the SOEs, and since you just touched on that, I'd like to uh, just read this question. So Xi's report to the 19th Party Congress mentioned the wish to push SOEs to be, quote, stronger, better, bigger. Sounds like an Olympic uh, <laughs> motto. What are the implications for, for the Chinese economy and politics for this position on the SOEs and for the reforms announced at the 18th Party Congress when we all thought that, oh, now's the time that finally we're going to see those reforms to the SOEs and they haven't really happened. Are we going to see them now, I guess, is the question here. And others as well. Yeah, I mean, I think Yashang obviously uh, can weigh in on this uh, authoritatively. I mean, I think when the, I went back and looked at that reform document from the third plenum, and I think many of us observing from out China uh, misread what it was about. And as soon as we saw things like CSOE reform, we presumed, oh, it must mean privatization. It must mean a whole set of things. But actually what is very clearly, even in that reform document, is that the reforms are meant to make the state sector more efficient to deliver better goods uh, for the party state. And I don't think there's been a deviation uh, from that. Uh, you know, it's the main source of patronage for the Chinese Communist Party, and it's one of the main sources of revenue, importantly, not just at the national level, but of course with the locally held state-owned enterprises. I mean, Yashang's written more authoritatively on this, but I think if you uh, pick up on what he was talking about with, um, you know, the um, efficiency within the economy and productivity, and where we see efficiency of investment moving, 
it's not necessarily the case that it should be to those state-owned enterprises where TFP, total factor productivity, seems to have been weakening over time. So I would just, just say I agree with uh, what Tony uh, has just said. I, I think it's very important when the Chinese leadership talks about, it's not just Xi Jinping, it's also previous leaders, when they talk about reforming the state-owned enterprises, it doesn't really automatically mean um, privatization. And, but I do believe that there's one difference between now and the previous uh, periods, which is this. Right? So uh, the previous leadership always meant the reform of the SOEs to, to be really strengthening the SOEs. But the previous leaders were willing to use some capitalistic tools, you know, material incentives and sort of superficial capitalistic uh, instruments, uh, board of directors, uh, independent board of directors and uh, supervisory uh, auditing committee. You know, I, I don't think those things mean much uh, because what really matters is the institutional context in which these things operate. But nevertheless, that they were willing to at least impose some of these things uh, on the SOEs, right? So pay the manager by uh, stock uh, options, uh, for example, right? And incentivize the, all of those are gone. Um, so, so essentially what you have is just the strengthening part without these, uh, uh, the restructuring part. I, I, again, you know, I, I don't believe that the restructuring efforts that they put in before were necessarily effective. Uh, it is more of a political uh, statement than an economic statement. Nevertheless, I think it's important in, in, in terms of signaling to the society, uh, to the managers, and, and you know, if you're willing to try some of these experiments, uh, even though they may not work, uh, at least you are willing to do that. So, so my worry is that now all you have is uh, investment, strengthening the state sector, bank loans, and all of that. And we know for a fact the SOEs, no matter what people say about SOEs making money, they don't. Uh, they, only make, they only make paper money uh, in, in the sense that because much of their inputs are subsidized. Right? So they have access to uh, low-cost capital, they have access to low-cost land, they, they get to pick the best of the human capital. If you actually take into account the subsidies, both implicit and explicit subsidies, SOE sector as a whole either does not make money or loses money in a very dramatic fashion. Right? So it's very important that, uh, that we're not sort of uh, be misled by the paper profits that they are making. So my worry is that, you know, whether or not now they are just looking at the paper money they are making. A much, well, I haven't mentioned another source of uh, 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 SOE's uh, uh, profitability, which is monopoly, right? So uh, the mobile phone operators, they charge very high prices to, to all of us. And uh, that's really just a transfer of money from your pocket to, to their pocket. It's not really making uh, overall improvements for the society as a whole. So 
I, I really worry about this, this current thinking about how SOEs can be made stronger. <coughs> Thanks, Yashang. I'm going to uh, take one more of uh, these online questions, and then we'll, we'll uh, open things up to the floor here. So this is the one, this is one has to do with, with rules. So maybe Joe uh, or Liz, Ed, you, you may want to respond to this one. Um, the questioner says here, or asks, uh, announcing or the announcement of uh, Xi Jinping thought, Xi Jinping Sixiang, after his first term, breaks with norms established in the post-Mao period. Does this indicate that she is also willing to ignore other norms of China's political process? Joe, you want to take this on first? And well, uh, first of all, we don't know that the Constitution or the party charter is going to include Xi Jinping Sixiang. Uh, there are a number of different formulas uh, that it could use, and there are different places that you could put it. Uh, the, the preamble of the charter, of course, starts out with, uh, we take as our guiding thought, Marxism, Leninism, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, if it's there, that's much more authoritative than if it's down lower. Uh, again, if you, you could put in the uh, socialism with Chinese characteristics in the new era without mentioning Xi, that's possible. Uh, or you could put in the whole enchilada, Xi Jinping and, and the thought, which would be much Greater, yes. This would break precedent. Uh, uh, normally, you get your name enshrined in the party charter when you leave office, not when you're in it. And if you take this to a uh, the really the highest point, putting the name and the thought up in the preamble, then it would be a, a real sign. I think not only of um, power centrality, but also perhaps of longevity. Uh, how do you ask somebody to step down when he's the font of all wisdom? Um, so that, this, would, that would be something to look for. Yeah, that's what uh, we're going to find out on Wednesday, or yeah, when the first plenum should decide that. Uh, yeah. Liz, Liz or Ed, do you want to comment on this? Well, I, I mean, I think the, several of the speakers have already pointed to very important ways in which Xi Jinping has already broken with norms, uh, the norm of balancing different, whether we want to call them faction or policy interests, uh, sort of Jiang Zemin developmentalism versus a Hu Jintao, Wen Jiabao welfare concern. And in the past, uh, the party seemed to have within it uh, contrasting impulses that functioned almost like a party of labor versus a party of capital, perhaps, and now that's gone. Um, so, so I think we've already seen that, and we can expect to see more of that. I do think, regardless of whether or not um, this uh, socialism with Chinese characteristics for a new era, with or without Xi Jinping's name, is put in the party constitution, um, that we are seeing under Xi Jinping a renewed interest in ideology. Not that it was ever gone. I mean, none of these trends are brand new. Um, but, um, but we have seen in just the last few years literally hundreds of think tanks opening up on Chinese universities, some of them with the name of Marxism, others of them socialism with Chinese characteristics, um, but um, receiving very large grants from the Department of Propaganda, the Ministry of Culture, and elsewhere to study Xi Jinping's <coughs> thought. And um, so I think there is no question but what 
the current regime is very, very serious about trying to develop an ideological underpinning of legitimacy for the party. And um, exactly what this will be, I think, is unclear at this point. Um, but it presumably will include some medley of both revolutionary symbolism and power and also traditional Chinese values of various mm -hmm. sorts. And, um, and I think it's likely to become, uh, in future years, a real challenge to those of us doing Chinese studies in this country. I think um, it's not an accident that uh, Guoxia uh, centers have opened up all over China, or that centers of Zhongguoxia are open for foreigners to learn about Chinese studies within China. There is, in fact, a massive emphasis on rethinking what Chinese ideology ought to be, how to present it at home, and how to present it internationally, to encourage social scientists to be actively engaged in this process, an enormous amount of money rewarding those who engage in this rethinking. And I think um, it's still very early days, but for those of us studying China, that we are going to find uh, some very interesting challenges to how we conceive about China and how we think of its history and whether our social sciences are really just the purview of Western uh, social scientists based on American and European models or whether, in fact, the Chinese experience um, will have something to, to tell us. So I think it's, it's a very important moment. Again, not brand new by, by any means, uh, but being pushed in a way that really is much more aggressive than we seen in the past. Your, your use just now of the word medley um, uh, made me think of songs. And I noticed, and uh, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm, I'm much less expert uh, than anybody here on uh, the language being used by the party, but I, I couldn't help but notice that in a, the background to many, uh, uh, many presentations, the banner showing, uh, showing, uh, mm -hmm. showing up again, which maybe they've been there all along. I haven't seen it for a while, but it certainly re reminded me of the song that was very popular in the 1980s. Uh, when I was uh, in China. So I don't know if that's a, one of the uh, melodies that will be in this remix of uh, ideological greatest hits uh, from the 20th and early 21st centuries or, or not. But uh, I think uh, I've certainly noticed it in my, own, in my own areas of study that ideology has, has become very much more prominent than, than, it, than it once was. And we have a question here on whether the factional model can still help us to understand how politics and factional we can put here perhaps in, in quotation marks with the various qualifications that um, uh, we've have been put on the table already is 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 this still the way that we should be understanding how how <laughs> politics works you in, in the way you see it or is there some other model uh, I don't know about what the new model would be but I um, for years now I haven't heard many people within China talk too much about the factional model I think that the, um, you know, before it was the sort of Shanghai Mafia or Shanghai Gang, then there was the Youth League, and then, um, and then I think most people thought the idea of a princeling model was pretty overblown, but it, there was the discussion of the Youth League and the uh, Shanghai Ban, and right. I think yeah. that the um, people haven't talked about the Youth League for a long time now, and I think that the recent rumors about Hu Chunhua or Little who possibly getting on the standing committee came as a surprise to many people, even though he, along with Sun, Sun Zheng Tsai were the two people who had been groomed by the party. So, um, so I, um, I've been discounting the, I, the talk of factions for a while 
now. Um, and I haven't seen any sort of new model emerge for how to discuss um, the different centers of power within the party. In fact, there hasn't been much talk of other of rival centers recently. So let us open things up. We'll get some questions from the floor and we'll bring it back uh, to our panelists. Uh, we've set up microphones uh, uh, over here uh, and over there at the top of the stairs. So if you would like to ask a question, uh, please uh, take yourself uh, to, uh, uh, to, to one of the mics. Meantime, we do have somebody. No, no, that's no. Julia. She's on our staff. <laughs> oh, Julia might have a question. Julia may have a question. <laughs> so, okay, please. I have two questions. So the first one probably goes to all of you. So this report, first time, redefined the critical social con contradiction in China. So what's your interpretation of this shift? Um, <clears throat> my second question goes to um, Edward Wen. So over decades, U.S. media are interested in covering human rights, political regime, including corruption. Uh, with, but <clears throat> my question is, with the development of time, are there new issues or perspectives you are exploring our covering. Okay. Uh, I'm going to throw in one or two other questions that have come in, just so we get a few things on the table before we go back to our panelists. Uh, one here. Many in Taiwan are debating whether Xi's speech is friendly toward Taiwan. <laughs> and we can spend a long time discussing what friendly means, I guess. Uh, <laughs> what are the... What are the implications of Xi's speech and the Party Congress for cross-strait uh, relations? Uh, and another interesting question has, has just uh, shown up here. Our panelists all study China from outside the country, which offers some sight lines not available domestically in addition to some blind spots. What can analysts within China contribute to this dialogue that's not possible for foreign observers? That's kind of a meta question, which I think is very interesting for us to, uh, to, to think about. So we have two questions just now about the Constitution um, and uh, about uh, human rights. And, um, and, uh, and but there was something else on the human rights question that, Ed, that was directed. Uh, asking what other realms the US media might right, 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 right. Taiwan, and then this question of uh, advantages and, and disadvantages of standing on the outside uh, and uh, looking in at the, at, at the 19th uh, Party Congress. Okay, I'll address the media question first. Um, I do think that uh, the US media, I mean, it's hard to use that term because there's lots of different personalities and organizations involved, but a lot of people, I think we're constantly questioning, at least at the times, our strands of coverage about China. I think there are certain things that will always be part of the coverage. One is um, politics and elite politics, for example. Another is the political economy. Um, another would be business and commerce. But outside of those core um, elements, and then also foreign policy, especially in relation to the US, outside of those core elements, I think that we're constantly rethinking other areas of coverage, and that's reflected in 
um, different beats that we assign people, um, different people we hire. So for example, uh, within our own organization, we focused um, some of our coverage, for example, on technology recently. I think we've, um, we've hired uh, one or two new tech writers and are looking for others. So I think that's a reflection, I think, of uh, this constant reevaluation of what we're doing. Um, I think when you mention human rights, I that's a bit of a um, stalking horse. I'm not sure. I don't think that we prioritize coverage of human rights. And in fact, I, if you did a examination or coverage, you would find that stories that you would categorize as human rights stories are actually in the minority among the stories that we do. Um, I think that one of the areas that we've um, dove into in the last couple of years was looking at the intersection of um, of commerce and the party elite. Um, I see my colleague David Barbosa is here in this room, and he was he's one of the people who has been on the forefront of doing that type of reporting. And um, so there are different areas that we've been trying to tackle, and it's an issue of constant reevaluation. Great. Who else wants to? respond to any of the other questions that's come up. Joe, you want to say something on Taiwan? Um, yeah, I, I did read the section on Taiwan um, maybe a little too quickly, uh, so I'm a little reluctant to respond directly. But it, I checked uh, the 18th Party Congress report, and uh, the Hong Kong, Almond, and Taiwan issues were handled in one paragraph. This time, the Taiwan issue was separated out mm -hmm and uh, seem to be handled at greater length. I don't think the language was particularly different. Uh, it was tough before, it's tough now. Uh, the emphasis on you must accept the Joar um, you know. So um, I hope that- That's uh, the, 90, the 92 consensus. Yeah, the 92 consensus. Uh, so I, I hope they don't mean what they say. I'll just make one uh, quick comment on the very interesting and difficult question of the difference between analysts who are based inside or outside of China and what they can contribute to our understanding. You know, it's often said that the best book on American politics was written not by an American, but by a Frenchman, uh, de Tocqueville, uh, Democracy in America. Uh, Tocqueville was able to raise those questions about American civil society, the problems of majority rule, and so forth, because he had an outsider's view coming from France and comparing America to continental Europe. And I do think there is something to be said for the advantages of being outside a society, perhaps for seeing the big picture or seeing it through different eyes um, that are inevitably comparative because you're coming from a different political system. But I also think there are real advantages uh, to Chinese working within China, not only um, by being able to see and experience and feel up close hand, at hand um, the nuances of Chinese politics, but also, in my view, being the only people who really um, are in a position to pass moral judgments and evaluations about their own politics. I personally don't feel comfortable saying very much about what is right and wrong about Chinese politics. Um, I feel it's my place to say that about American politics. And I hope that Chinese studying their own 
politics will feel emboldened, difficult as it sometimes is, to pass those kinds of moral judgments that those of us outside of China have a much more difficult time weighing in on. In that regard, I, I, one of the things that's always struck me, Liz, and I wonder if others noticed this as well, that um, it's not difficult, I think, for most Americans to separate the love of country from the love of the party. Aiguo and Aidang are by no means uh, so closely linked, uh, and there are plenty of people who hate all political parties and still would claim that they, that they love their countries. And so that patriotism in that way, at least until recently in this country, uh, and this may be changing too, um, uh, has been uh, independent of whatever political position that you may take. And I think we saw some signs that, that that maybe was at one point changing in China, but maybe it's not changing, or maybe we were deceived in the first place. I don't know, Tony, if you wanted to pick up on that. Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, it was a point I made in, in the brief comments to introduce that I do think, um, you know, it's, it, it's varied over time, obviously. Um, Historically, there have also been periods where nation and party were so closely identified that criticism of policy would be seen as unpatriotic and you, you could be accused of being a traitor or being shut down. And uh, you know, Liu Binyan was one of the first writers, uh, as the reform started, who talked about this distinction uh, between love of the country and love of the party. And uh, he had a phrase, you know, if I held up the mirror and the mirror's cracked, is that my fault or not? So I think we are seeing a tightening of that. A second thing actually relating to the question of Taiwan that I've noticed recently is I think one of the most interesting phenomenon that's taking place is the Chinese Communist Party now saying that it is the inheritor of the Chinese tradition, which is extraordinary. I mean. I was a student in China during Pi Lin Pi Kung, or just after, you know, Pi Lin Pi Kung. So, you know, criticized Lin Biao and Confucius. So now the Chinese Communist Party taking on the mantle that its caricature of Confucianism is really the true inheritance of the past is, is dramatic. And I think it has consequences for, for Taiwan because originally the Communist Party's uh, claim to legitimacy was it was the radical break with the past, that it had destroyed feudalism, it had destroyed semi-colonialism, and it was a new path. And tradition had moved to Taiwan. Now, I think this plays into cross-straits relations because what the Communist Party is now saying is, no, the tradition's not on Taiwan. Now, that gets complicated with DPP and Min uh, Jiandang, obviously, also sharing the same view about that. <laughs> but it's more difficult for the Kuomintang. And I think that's, that's quite a strong uh, difference, which I think will have implications for uh, cross-straits relations with the Communist Party saying, no, we are the inheritors of the tradition, our kind of institutions, the culture, the things we're building is in a line from the past. And that radical rupture that, you know, I first went to China experiencing has been glossed over. Mark, uh, in order to separate the love of the party from the love for the country, I think the basic condition for that separation is you have to have more than one party to love, right? So, <laughs> and when you just have one um, and you don't allow others, uh, I mean, how, uh, so I can say I love the country but not the party, but how do I separate the two, right? So you can't really uh, do it. 
The other thing I want to say is that it was easier to talk about this issue 20 years ago than it is now. Because 20 years ago, there was an effort to separate the party from the government. And the, um, in the 1980s, uh, the, uh, the leadership decided to downplay the role of the party in the SOE uh, management uh, and in the government institutions. So essentially, when you have that separation, uh, then you can decide, make a decision which part uh, that you criticize and which part you, you, you don't. Now it's very, very difficult. And Tony is absolutely right about this um, uh, returning to the Chinese uh, tradition. That makes it triply difficult to do the separation, right? So not only that there's only one entity, the, the country and the party, that once you start criticizing, you're criticizing yourself. You're criticizing the tradition. You're criticizing this uh, 4,000 years of uh, civilization. And that's a terrible burden to have. 5,000 5, 5, years, Yashan. Oh, 5,000. I'm sorry. I think the, U, the US uh, president uh, said 8,000. Yeah. Let, me, let me just say, <laughs> yeah, but let me just say 10,000 years. So, so it's, just to cover myself, uh, it's an insurance policy I took out. Uh, and so, so that makes it really, really difficult, right? And I think the effect of that is really intellectual um, stifling, intellectual development. We are uh, nearer time. I'm going to ask uh, the following question and uh, ask each of our panelists to, to use one minute or less to respond. Well, for me, and uh, a couple of you have mentioned this term, the phrase, the new era, the xin shidai, is one of the most arresting new formulations, the new tifa that has come out of the 19th Party Congress so far. I would like to ask each of you just to give us uh, your thoughts on how will we know that we have indeed reached a new era, a xin shidai? What will be the thing, what's the one thing that you can point to that if we see this happening, yes, indeed, it's a, it's a new era? And I'm going to start with... Joe, <laughs> <laughs> and we'll go that way. I, <laughs> I was going to ask, uh, in the Deng Xiaoping era, it was called the Xin Shi Qi, the new period. But a uh, Shidai is much bigger than a Shi Qi. Well, I, uh, <laughs> seriously, no, that's, that's not yeah, a joke. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no. So, no, I, you know, I, let me go back to this uh, uh, revival of tradition that you've been talking about, because I see a real effort to, I don't know, call this a cultural decoupling. That there is something distinct about the combination of Chinese culture and socialism that doesn't necessarily conflict with the West, but is separate from and is a distinct Chinese path. Mm -hmm. And that's what this is beginning to set down. Okay. Yasha? Oh. Uh, one thing. I, I, um, I think the I, what Joe said uh, earlier is really, really remarkable, which is that um, the level of the language, the level of the discourse about political intrigues and all of that, I think that's new, right? And whereas before, so if you look at how Hua Guofeng was treated, right, and Hu Yaobang, even you know Zhao Ziyang, and so the, the other side won. They uh, won the political uh, uh, battle, but they treated them, especially Hua and who less so Zhao Ziyang, gently, 
right? And um, I thought that was a good thing that the Deng leadership uh, implemented. You need to have some gentle treatment of your political opponents. The thing that I worry about is that, and th th this is one, one problem with using corruption as a political instrument, because corruption really, you can't really treat the corrupt person gently. You kind of have to lock them up. Once you do that, then the, the, the moderate level of political gentility disappears. So that and would so be I, I, I worry a sign that. of a new era, not necessarily a good sign. Uh, or a good, well, well, good thing. Liz. Yeah, I mean, of course, this um, embracing of traditional Chinese culture by the Chinese Communist Party is significant. Of course, it's not just going on under Xi Jinping. He's amplified it, but Jiang Zemin very much was into this whole uh, process uh, himself, and certainly under Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao, it continued uh, apace. And um, it, it's just received, I think, uh, more central funding and more purpose recently. But I think you know that raises the question of what will be the real centers of learning in the future. So I don't know if it's going to happen in the next five years. But I think the thing for us in higher education to be looking for is when, in fact, um, Cambridge, Massachusetts isn't the place that people want to come for higher education, but Beijing is or Shanghai is or whatnot. And um, you know, with these rankings, that's already starting to happen in QS now. Harvard has fallen to number six, um, well under Stanford, uh, Oxford, Cambridge, and so forth. And Chinese universities are rising very rapidly. As I suggested earlier, I have no stock or faith in these rankings, but they're enormously important in terms of where people invest their resources, both ordinary people and uh, states. And so the extent to which China can convert its um, uh, political and uh, economic power into intellectual power, I think, will be the real test of whether this is a new age. That's what it's trying to do, I believe, and superficially is making enormous strides in that area, and whether, in fact, those will be backed up substantially is, is what we have yet to a see. A very opposite observation for all of us here at Harvard. Ed, how will we know when it's a Xin Shidae? Uh, I think when there's a decisive break um, among leaders in China from the Deng Xiaoping formulation of hiding your capabilities and biding your time. Um, I think that, I mean, that's not a formal part of policymaking in China, but I think it's an understood um, element among many policymakers and state leaders. And I think that when China doesn't go back to that formulation or that when these leaders don't go fall back on that formulation or the one of, oh, China's still a developing nation, um, and so give, allow us more time to do this or that. I think that's when we'll realize there's a new era. Um, I think many Chinese are eager for this new era. They want China to be at the forefront of world leadership. And, um, and this can be leadership through either coercive means or through more soft power attractive mm -hmm. means. Um, but I think that when China takes that part on the stage, which could be coming up very soon, then, um, then that's the new era. I, one addendum to that, though, is I think that internally within China, there are, um, there will be a more, um, there are certain problems, I think, that will be more long-lasting, might even 
uh, go into that new area, which will be, I, th I think about the frontier regions or the border regions, which include not only obviously Xinjiang and Tibet, but also even Hong Kong now. Um, and I think that um, the question I have is when the a great power can um, have a cohesive internal uh, system that everyone buys into, or at least most people buy into, not like large sections of the country still resist. And I think that that will be a harder step to take to reach this new era. Thanks, Ed. Tony, last word for you. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would agree with that, that I would say the new era is when it has a sufficiently stable political system that it can deal uh, with the ongoing uh, policy challenges, the inequality environment, and so on. I would say just three last things that perhaps would help moving forward. You know, first is be careful what you wish for. Um, you know, entering the, the world stage is not easy. Um, it takes a lot of training, it takes a lot of skills, a lot of different levels, which, you know, world powers have usually taken decades to accumulate. I think two other things are very important in the new era. One, I would say, is learn where the dynamics are within your society and within the economy, and don't rely on those sectors and elements which aren't. The Chinese people are extremely entrepreneurial, and the private sector has shown great creativity. And I would say, last but not least, trust your society and trust your own people, um, because they are the source of dynamism for much of what has happened in China. And by setting controls around what they can read, what they can access, I think is liable to frustrate development into the new era. And with that, we will close our event. Uh, please join me in thanking our panelists, Ed Wong, Liz Perry, Huang Yaosheng, Joe Kuchler, and Tony Sate. And we hope to see you at another event at Worldwide Week later this week.